This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Joan Darniel, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your new novel is about to come out. We're just a couple of days away from Devil House. Your first novel was a finalist for the National Book Award, Wolf in White Van. And then it was followed by Universal Harvester a couple of years later. John, Devil House is 400 pages. It's twice the size of both of your earlier books. How did we get here? Well, I mean, I had noticed that about my other books is like that they were they weren't short, short, but at the same time, from my earliest efforts at writing stories when I was a child, I always felt like they were they were quite short. And then for a while, I became a champion of that as a form. But I knew it was kind of compensating there, is like because I had a friend she writes children's books now who didn't seem to struggle in, in getting her short stories up to twenty pages. And I'd be like, how do you even do that? But I also, when teachers would say, well, if you outline your story, and I would think, ah, what kind of person writes an outline? You know, I had very romantic or post-romantic ideas about that. But now I'm friends with some writers. And one of them told me that that they spend literally years outlining a book. And I thought, oh, that's a romance more profound than the romance of the Jack Kerouac scroll or whatever, you know, like to actually just spend all this time in the imaginary universe of the book before you, in a more medieval sense, before you, and now I shall write. You know, it's a very medieval thing to do to say, well, now I'm, I'm actually going to start writing, which to the medieval scribe was meaningful because you didn't have a lot of paper. You didn't have a lot of ink. It's like to actually spill the ink. Like that's where we get the term from. It's like you are you are using a finite resource when you do that. In the digital age, we don't think of it that way. We just keep writing, writing, writing. Have, but so I outlined for a while before I get going, except when I first start writing a book, I just write the first few pages and see where it's going. Mm-hmm. That's where the ideas sort of spring up. It's kind of like doing improv. I'm just like inhabiting a character momentarily and say, well, here's what's happening in my life, you know, and then things just happen to spring up in the course of that. And then I stop and then I started writing an outline and I got very into the idea of the outline because I got this idea that it would have seven parts. And I said, well, seven parts is going to be pretty long. And so I wanted to start to figure out what the structure would be. The same thing happened with the beginning of Wolf and White Van, but the only idea was that it would go backwards to a given point. That was that's the structure of that. It's going to be zeroing in on, on a moment that we'll know about it at the outset. Universal Harvester had a, a good outline too, but this one had an architectural blueprint that reflects the house itself. And once I had that, it became much easier to make a big book without, without having to pad it or anything. Because there was actually a lot more book before Sean got to it. It was, it was much longer, but yeah, but we got it to, to what I think is a good length. Gage Chandler is our narrator. He is a true crime writer. Yeah. He's moved to Milpitas, California to chase a story. And he's been told by his agent that it's teenagers behaving badly, that there could possibly be some sort of occult piece to it. Gage prides himself on being a really immersive researcher. And so he's moved into the building where a double murder has taken place so that he can reconstruct the story. And one of the big ideas that you're wrestling with in this book is who gets to tell stories? Yeah. Who has the right to tell a story? Who has standing, right? Mm-hmm. The legal concept mm-hmm. of standing, that you can't file a lawsuit unless you're personally affected by it, right? Which is a sound legal principle, right? I can't sue you because you hurt a friend of mine. I can't do that. He has to do that. There's a lot of ideas about that and about domain, about whose house a place is, you know, and, and, and only those people sort of get to speak for that house. And these are ideas that Gage is, he sort of begins from a sort of a mirrored version of that idea, like that you can't tell the story unless you know what it's like inside the property. He haunts properties. He goes to them and, and gets a sense of them and tries to feel like he knew what it was like when the thing went down. But I think that he comes to understand that that's only the beginning of things. It's, like, it's not profound to say that, well, externals can be deceiving, but Gage has a lot invested in the externalities. He views them as a way to get into the internals. And I think over the course of the book, one thing he learns is that they can only tell you so much. Gage is very interested in how he tells stories 
Mm, yeah, he's proud of his style. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's a little bit of John seeping through there. When we say he's a true crime writer, well, he's he's an artsy true crime writer. His books are not going to sell Wamba numbers, right? <laughs> the teenagers in Milpitas, though, are the bulk of this story. And we're going to come back to them in a second. And we are going to have a spoiler-free conversation about this. Cool. Even though... You got to remind me of that, though, because... I will. <laughs> it's been spoiled for me. <laughs> I will. You and I know exactly where the book goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's such a pleasure to get there that I would really like listeners to be able to get there on their own. Yes. Hurry, because on the internet, people will be spoiling it for you. <laughs> There's that, but... You and I can at least do what we can. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's another piece to this book, and it's Gage referencing one of his earlier books, and fast his first book, which has also been made into a movie. It's called The White Witch, and it's the story of a teacher near San Luis Obispo. Or yeah, uh, in uh, in she's in Morro Bay, um, okay. so it's in San Luis Obispo. I, yeah. Two of her students break into her apartment and she kills them both. The book is enough of a success. It becomes a film. But one of the boys' mothers has something to say to Gage. And her letter to him, which is quite large, finally arrives at the space in Milpitas. And this goes back to my earlier point of who gets to tell the story. She wants to be really clear with him that he is missing the point. That yes, he's made some money off of this story. Congratulations. But he doesn't know exactly what it is. And yet, mom, this is the mom of one of the boys who's been murdered. She actually confirms a lot of the details for him because she doesn't even realize. She says to him at one point, you know, you made my son's childhood sound horrible. And yet she reveals plenty of details that genuinely make it sound horrible. So perspective is something that you play with in this book. You play with the perspective of the people who've committed crimes. You play with the perspective of the people who have lost their lives. You play with Gage's perspective and a few other people as well. How did that come about? Did you start with Gage and build the framework around these other perspectives? Or did you just know from the start that you needed to have a larger cast? So I started with Gage, but I also, as I was talking about outlining, I wrote the outline first, so I had seven parts. And I said to myself, is this going to be a trollop book where it just is one, two, three, and maybe it leaps in time, but it's basically moving that direction. So no, I had this idea I wanted a mirroring structure with a, you know, it'd be seven parts, seven's a, a, a prime, right? And and so so the middle is going to be a nice barrier. So that's when I got the idea for the sides to reflect each other. It's one reason why one of the names that uh, is given to the teenagers at one point is the Knights of the Broken Mirror. That's only one line. They don't go by that a lot, but it's one thing. So yeah, so I got the idea it would reflect each other. And when you think of reflection, you think of something that both is an accurate representation, but also an opposite. It also shows you the other side of something. I'm always playing a lot with tenses and person. I, I sort of feel that some of the most basic things of writing are where you can get the most interesting stuff done. Like in poetry, if you're working with meter and rhyme, that's a great first place to start, you know, it's like because it, you'll never exhaust that. And I have Catholic bones and I feel that limitation is where our freedom lies. So I said, well, okay, the, what if the first part's in the first person and the seventh part is in the first person? I got very excited then. And then two and five will be the second person. And then two and six will be the second person. Three and five will be third person. And then and then I said, well, when I get to the middle, I'll figure out what to do with that one. <laughs> so, so I didn't have a certain idea for what the middle would be. The beginning was Gage. And then the question was going to be how to structure the book and how to, how to build that. And I didn't know how part seven was going to be Gage and the first person without sort of being a rehash. And that's when I got a pretty fun idea that I didn't get until I got to that point. And I was really super stoked with that. Using the second person in those two chapters you're referring to, it's quite hypnotic and quite intimate. 
Yeah, no, the intimacy of that surprised me. I don't remember thinking this, but I I know that I've played a lot with person in my songs and there are a number of songs that are mainly in the second person. I always try to limit those because they're really effective when they happen. So you don't want to overdo it, you know? And so, But I have a few, I can't think of one offhand, but there's a number of, you is one of the most used words in Mountain Goat songs, right? And, uh, and once I started doing it, I mean, that was some of the most rewarding writing because it does feel extraordinarily intimate because you feel like you're writing a letter, which in later in part six, I am, right? But it's a great way to get to know what you're thinking about somebody to be just continually addressing them. We don't actually do that that much. In daily talk, we do a lot of I talk, right? It's interesting that when I'm writing all these you things, it just changes the whole nature of your perspective. You're putting the focus outward. And we're human beings. We're still probably just talking about ourselves anyway, you know? And so, but it shifts the perspective and especially it, it awakens an empathy uh, in me. I, I can't imagine writing, you know, even when she's writing to Gage, you know, she's very angry. But she's also full of, of empathy. You know, she's furiously angry. But she also, she identifies that like, you did this for money and but she gets it. That's why she's one of my better characters so far is that like, she has a lot of understanding of his position, but she doesn't think that he has as much understanding of his position. She might also not be wrong. <laughs> no, I think she's right. I mean, but the thing is, you said earlier that it's about how he told the story. But I think her question is a harder one, mm -hmm. which is whether anybody should tell that story at all. Mm -hmm. Now, we live in the information age. So the idea of not reporting or telling or showing something is kind of sacrilegious to us I mean, in this post-religious society. If I say to you, look, I found out an incredible, dark, horrible thing happened, you know, and nobody really seems to know about it. Well, I'm not going to tell anyone because I don't feel that adding this information to the world will help anyone. Then you will say to me, what are you, nuts? You got the story. You never do know where a story will do some good. Somebody might hear it. Anybody in this whole culture will tell me that all the stories should be told. All the footage should be shown. Everybody should know everything, that information is freedom. I think Jana Perez would argue that story doesn't do me any good. And it did you some good when you made money, but that's the only good it did. Now, you could have people who would argue, look, I read that book and I decided to pursue a career in law or whatever. Those would be arguments, but she has standing. She could say, look, this book added to the available sum of misery in the world. It increased mine. So she has a point, you know, and I think the notion of Remaining silent is one that has almost no currency whatsoever for us presently. And certainly for Gage, like it would never occur to him to hear a good story. Mean, his, his editor calls him and says, hey, I got an amazing story where some people died. Cool. Let me go out there and, and work on this. You know, and that makes sense. It's his job, you know. Super Chuck had I'm called Here's to Shutting Up, right? <laughs> so, and like the notion of remaining silent, obviously there's an irony in me saying this when I speak in like nine page long paragraphs, but I think it's true. It's like sometimes the right choice is to say, what good does it do for this world to tell this story? And of course, I also read a lot of literary theory. The question of like whether anybody should be writing at all is a legit question. <laughs> what, you know, there's already plenty of books, right? <laughs> But telling stories was the first truly human thing we did, John. No, that's we right. We can't but, stop. <laughs> by Ecclesiastes, like 2,000 years ago, Ecclesiastes is saying, of the making of many books, there is no end. <laughs> and speaking of, one of the things I love about this book, though, is it's set in the early aughts. So technology isn't quite what it is now. Right. There are no mentions of cell phones. There right. is no Googling. I mean, there are a couple of points where <laughs> Gage buys research material off of eBay. Yes. And <laughs> he references Flickr. 
yes. which, you know, things like that. And it is really refreshing. And to take the tech out forces us into the story in a much more human way. And and I say this knowing full well that tech is programmed by people and created by sure. people. Yeah, and, yeah. No, you know, but you're absolutely right. And it's, it's something that I've worked with in various ways. I mean, I just think it's that we anthropologically are dealing with you know, the, the tech surge starts in the 80s. 30 years is not much time to have figure out how to incorporate that into a much older practice of literature. There are writers who are good at it. Patricia Lockwood is the one who comes, like her book last year, absolutely brilliant, 100% mired in the tech. And yet she avoids using like the word Twitter, I think entirely. I think yes. she calls it the portal, right? And, and I mean, that book is so incredible and it's both an interrogation of tech and it also it celebrates it. And I think in the end, it sort of says, look, there's a connection that gets fostered in this. You know, I think the book is brilliant. I can't say enough good things about it. But for me, that is always a challenge is like the fourth part of Universal Harvester. There's a thing where people start digging around for stuff and the college student runs upstairs and gets online and goes, yeah, it took me five minutes. <laughs> it's like a, it's a GeoCities page. Oh my God, right? And so, yeah, it's. I think incorporating tech, we're still at a place where you have to go all in if you're doing that, right? If you, if you have Google on one page, you got to have it every 10 pages or so because that's our reality. I don't want to be writing those books. Maybe I do have a gift for it, but it doesn't inspire me. So I do try to find ways around it, whether that's setting in a different historical period or if I write in some future book, if I have some Luddite <laughs> narrator or something who opts out. But I think it's possible to, to situate stuff in the present world and still make minimize the tech. Hollywood does this. Hollywood knows nobody wants to look at people looking at their phones. <laughs> so what we don't know is that Hollywood is right. And we also don't want to be looking at each other on our phones. It's like important to try and remember this in the house. Right? <laughs> we also lose a lot of serendipity. You can't get lost as easily. I mean, everyone's carrying a high powered map in their pocket. No, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's uh, I still get lost on runs. I'm a, I'm a distance runner now. I'm kind of been injured since August. So I, I say distance, but I haven't done longer than seven miles since August. But that's one of the glories of running is your runs get long enough that you no longer want to take your phone. It's extra weight. So you have a watch and you have your earbuds, maybe. But otherwise, you watch, you can program a run. But what I do is I just go. I've gotten lost multiple times. I got lost in Barcelona. I got lost in London. This is the greatest. And you don't have your phone with you. You go... Guess I better ask somebody. I'm not a Luddite. The technology has given us so many things, right? And, it, and it's, you know, and also there was no point in trying to dial it back as soon uninvent the steam engine, you know, but, but at the same time, I think we're all navigating what presence we wanted to have in our lives. And I think practically everybody finds when we succeed in reducing it, we get a lot more. I mean, for me, what I'm doing with that now is just New Year's resolution stuff where I set a list of stuff I want to do every day. And some of it's going to necessitate being offline. If you keep to those things, then you buy yourself the offline time instead of just you find a dead hour and you go, well, I guess I have to do something else. Look to the list. <laughs> go, go look at the list of things you were planning on doing. And I think it's really important too for Derek and Seth and Alex, the three boys were really the heart yes. of yeah. the larger to, section. To have of dead time say. together in the store, right? To have, right? Yeah, to be hanging out and not with phones. Yeah. Because also it's sort of the three of them against the world. That's as right. it were. Derek, I mean, he's the college bound kid. He's a little more responsible. He's actually their connection to the space yeah. that they're in because he'd been working here at this adult bookstore on the highway. Which it's, an, <laughs> it's an irony because the other ones would be the ones who would be more likely to find the store for whatever reason. It's not Derek's type of haunt, but but it was when it was a comic store. You know, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's an adult bookstore now, but Derek started working there when it was a comic store and then the guy changed the stock out 
and Derek didn't really care. And, and so he's, he's doing counter help at the local porn store, which is, <laughs> that has to be pre-internet because once the internet happens, those places by and large get shuttered, right? I mean, right. <laughs> There's a sense of loss and a sense of longing in these three boys. The space becomes their clubhouse. Yeah. It becomes home for one of them. Alex yeah. is Alex. without a home. Seth's mom is just not around that much. She loves him, but she's just not around that much. So she's he can over, She's overwhelmed. She needs right. help and she doesn't have Seth is too much. He sort of comes and goes as he'd like. And Derek has parents who are very actively involved in his life, yeah, especially as it comes to college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've said a bunch of scenes at dinner. Uh, well, the epigraph from this book is from Ivy Compton Burnett. Every one of her novels begins at breakfast. Mm-hmm. Every last one begins at the breakfast table, which I think is the greatest thing in the world. These three kids meet at school. They might not have connected if it weren't for this time. Right. It's clear that Derek and Seth have known each other since they were small. Alex has been on the periphery and then he disappears and then he comes back because he sees their bikes. Yeah. outside of the space. These are all sort of lost moments. No one's emailing anyone else. No one's texting anyone else. No right. one's saying, I'm going to jump on Discord. I'm going to do that. No one's on Twitch. <laughs> yeah. There's a weird math to do here that mm-hmm. I've been online since 1994, right? So I was on early, early. I was using a Pegasus email account. However, tech is generally conceived of, especially in the age of social media, as sort of like rock and roll used to be as the domain of the young. So if somebody of my age starts to write about tech, I think there will often be a general perception that I must be getting it wrong. So you sort of come in at it with a disadvantage. And I'm okay with that because I don't want to write about tech anyway. So, But I do think that restriction is there that like you have to be extraordinarily careful not, not to get a detail wrong because it's going to clang, right? If you do get a detail wrong for people who are so immersed in it, for young people who, who are growing up in that environment, when you get one thing wrong, they're going to go, oh yeah, I, I don't believe your story anymore. This happens to musicians when people try to portray rock and roll and to writers when people try to portray writers and any specialized profession you know that 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 when i watch a movie that has a rock band in it or my drummer is is really good at saying this it takes about 30 seconds ago none of these people have ever been on tour they have no idea and it just takes one thing for them to miss it and you just don't trust them again you go oh yeah you were just guessing You, you read a tour diary or three or five but you don't know you don't have a sense of what it's actually like. And uh, you didn't get the smell of the room right. And if you're writing that sort of stuff, then I think the people who are immersed in it, you would have to be so on your guard that you just have to make it your theme, right? Then you could do that. I don't feel like it's my beat and I don't really want to spend months and months using TikTok and becoming a TikTok user to be able to write about TikTok. Actually, it's funny. I'm not going to name any names, but there is a guy who writes about tech stuff who that's what he seems to do. Just start getting super into whatever the thing is that everybody's talking about. And I'm like, I feel like it's not a great look. (laughs) I get it. I totally get it. You've been writing music and performing music for what, 30 years at this point? Yeah, at least. Yeah. Okay. You've known for a really long time that you were going to be a storyteller, regardless of the medium, whatever the medium was going to be, whether it was books or music, you were going to be a storyteller. And you've been really clear about that since you were small. Yes, since I was five. Okay. So we have an idea of who you are as a writer, certainly, but who are you as a reader? I mean, do you remember the book from childhood that made you think, oh, I need more of this? That's a great question because I I wanted to be a writer before I can name any of the writers that I Mm -hmm. I wanted to be. I mean, what's funny is like, 
<laughs> no, funny, but I remember having James and the Giant Peach read to me and maybe even picking it up and reading it when I was five or six. Well, now, Roald Dahl has aged kind of badly in a lot of ways. This happens a lot in parenting. Is like My memories of that book are just of this incredible world, incredible living inside the peach and all that. And you go back, well, women who are being dismissed are called sluts in, in Roald Dahl books for children, right? Well, I'm not going to read those books to my children, nor am I going to gloss over that and go, oh, well, he said a mean word. to say, hell with it. There's a lot of other children's authors I can read. You know, I don't, I don't have to rescue Roald Dahl, nor do I think my outlook was harmed by him. But, but I do remember that, that James and the Giant Peach, the vividness of the scenes was very striking to me. And then I said that I wanted to be a writer somewhere between my fifth and sixth birthday because my mom got me a cheap manual, like an old manual typewriter, the type that you could get for like five bucks because nobody wanted them anymore. They were, they were slick ones. And this was a Royal, like a 1936 Royal. It weighed like a ton. And she got it for me. And I immediately wrote a short story and she sent it to my dad. And my dad freaked out and, and taught his college English classes the first line of it. My dad taught at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and he taught agriculture majors freshman comp. Not a glamour job for an English teacher, right? And uh, so he's teaching them how to write basic, effective prose or how to read it. And the line my dad would recite again and again, <laughs> I'd say the line was, once a bugle stood in the window of a store that sold brass goods. And he would read that out loud and say, if you write me a sentence that good, you've got your B. Right? <laughs> so, and that was the beginning. But as far as the, the first books I would have read that would have made me want to be a writer, it would have been a year or two later when I read C.S. Lewis, uh, when I got The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and really began to feel the power. But also, there's so much in that because I have this problem with a lot of books that when they unfold and change, which mine do too, I mourn for the part that I have to trade. When Mr. Tumnus goes to Narnia and everything's nice and the candy is there, I'm really mad when I don't get to have that Narnia again, ever again in the book, right? <laughs> it's like when it goes wintry, right? And so there's, there's stuff in there, but, but it would have been C.S. Lewis, specifically Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, and The Magician's Nephew. And that's sort of the darkest of them, really. It's, it's the one that's got harsh magic in it. You know, my dad was a Voyage of the Dawn Treader fan, and I liked it fine. But Magician's Nephew, that was the one that was kind of the much more gothy slasher movie one, you know, and, and that one left real marks on me. And then after that, I got into uh, the Earthsea books from Le Guin. There's very powerful storytelling in these books. Well, it's a combination of world building and voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Le Guin is without peer for world building, right? Actually, <laughs> I never ask people about process because I don't feel like you can really tell much about your own process anyway. But it's one where you go, wow. <laughs> when you're reading the book, it becomes clear. She's not just dropping things in. She has the whole thing in her skull, you know. But you start with voice, it seems to yes, me. That's right. Yeah. It's always voice. And when you're writing music, it's basically a solo effort on your part. You're sitting down, you're doing the music, you're doing the lyrics, you're doing sort of the whole piece. That's right. But when you're writing a novel, you're working with your editor and you've had the same editor across three novels since since Wolf and White Van. How is that process different for you beyond the fact that it's much more collaborative? But what is it like as the creative to say, oh, I'm going to let someone in the door early? Well, but I, I don't let anybody in very early. I mean, when, when the book is being bought, when it's being sold to the publisher, they usually see, I think, three chapters or five chapters. But after that, I don't submit my work as I'm going along. I call sometimes. I don't share anything I'm feeling itchy about. <laughs> I fix it all myself. I take a lot of pride in delivering as clean a manuscript as I can. So when Wolf and White Van lands on Sean's desk, he only came back with a couple questions. He said, I wonder about this. 
I feel like there's a thread or two that got dropped. Like that's the main issue with me is because I like for things to become diffuse, but people have a strong need for closure of some kind. Now, I mean, my whole project is against that more or less, but I get the need for a feeling of, of tidiness, right? And I'm not writing experimental fiction, so I'm not going to just explode all the conventions. So yeah, for the first two books, it was mainly in you know, part three, I sort of feel like we don't get enough of a connection to the rest of the book. So maybe he points the finger, says maybe more here or maybe mm -hmm. here in this one he said maybe less here right there was a lot more book when it got to sean than there is now it's mainly in part seven i did a lot of work toward building that and it turned out that we didn't really need that much of that and i was relieved by this but i don't show anything until i have an imaginary adversarial relationship that is wholly imaginary but i, I want to present something where i already have answers to the objections <laughs> like i don't it's not that I won't be edited for content. If I've written a bad line, I want to know about it and I want an editor to fix it for me. But having said that, as a stylist, I've worked hard to get to where I am. I want to submit a manuscript where the editor is going to say, there is no reason for me to fix any of this for style. The copy editor does stuff with that. And then I argue with the copy editor. So. What do you get from writing novels that you don't get from writing songs? Um, there is a great satisfaction to finishing a big project. With an album, you get some of that. I guess there are there are megalomaniac visionary types who go into an album knowing what they want to do. I know people who have the sequence of their album decided before they get to the studio. And I've experimented with that a time or two. In League with Dragons, this had an arbitrary sequence, not arbitrary, but a conditional sequence set up before we got there. But because albums happen in real time when you go to make them as versus when you write them, when you get into the studio, there are just countless intangibles unpredictable things about who's going to play what, how's it going to sound. If you wrote them by yourself in your house, once it's fleshed out with other instruments, maybe a song that seemed like you should play it hard, actually, it sounds better if everybody pulls it back, if everybody plays it quietly. And then that song probably has more place on the back end of the album than in the jump off spot, right? There's all these things. Those are just a couple of instrumentation, you know, depending on how much or how little time you have in the studio to spend, you can give multiple looks at songs. Fleetwood Max, Tusk, right? This is an album that's made when studio budgets are huge and they're coming off one of the biggest albums of all time. And so they get to spend a lot of time at Village Recorders in LA doing infinite versions of every song. <laughs> just as many looks as you want. Play it slow, play it fast. Brian Wilson is another guy who does stuff like this. Prince builds his own studio. We'll never even hear the tens, dozens, hundreds of versions of the luxury of being able to say, I'm going to stay up all night, all week, because I got this idea for a song. And maybe it's actually just a, a study for a later song I'm going to do. But for most bands, including us, you go in and then you see which way it goes. And then things change. With a novel, when that happens, you can say, okay, well, it looks like this whole, and this happened in this book multiple times. You go, well, it looks like this hundred pages is garbage now. I'll throw all this in the trash. <laughs> and so, and you have to do that. This was a very different book just a year and a half ago. You can't imagine how different. At a midway point, I said, oh, the book has a different idea about where it's going. Well, I guess I'll throw all this away. And there was so much characters you never will ever get to meet and all this stuff. And uh, and that doesn't happen in an album. It, it can happen in the writing depending on how much time you have. But once you make an album, there's uh, the, the time you have in the studio to make it happen sort of constrains you in in what is to me a beneficial way because again i think constraint is good i think without constraint you have jd salinger never publishing again <laughs> so.
But also, I think there's something to be said for the form of the novel. I mean, yes, there are writers who love to push the experimental envelope. I mean, Robert Coover is yeah. the first person who pops. Oh, on. yeah. No, I'm, I'm a William Gass. This would right. No use for traditional form at all. So. But at the same time, there is a very distinct pleasure that comes from something that has sort of a beginning, a middle and an end. Yes. Yeah. And a character progression, which Gage has a very specific progression. And we're staying away from a lot of it because it's really fun to discover. And I have to say, I am not often surprised by endings. I was surprised by the ending of this book and in a very pleasant way. In a very, very way, it's important when you're doing an ending like this one, you want to say, well, I want you to be surprised. I don't want it to be it was all a dream or whatever, or, you know, I, I don't want you to go, oh, okay, cool. You pulled a rabbit out of the hat there. It's like, I want it to, I want you to be able to go back to part one and go, oh, he told me this was going to happen. <laughs> so, I think there's some very distinct markers on the road as you go through this story. That's and thing Sean was amazing at an edit was like, you know, mm-hmm. saying, is this an opportunity to lay a little ground for what's coming? The piece about the knights and the boys and even Gage is sort of hinting at my mother's descended from royalty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really still very powerful mythology. The Green Knight did quite yeah. well with Dev Patel. And is that something you knew was going to happen from the first draft? Or did you sort of noodle that a little later? I mean, this whole idea of the honor of knights and the connection between these boys. Well, I knew I was doing something with knights from the first chapter. That was kind of one of the springboards of that first chapter I wrote before the outline, right? Was I knew it was going to involve castles because the plot I was envisioning from the moment was castle doctrine, right? And castle doctrine is this thing that is weaponized by pro-Second Amendment people to say, well, you've come to my house and I have any doubts about who you are, I get to shoot you. But it's rooted in a very old law, which states that your home is your castle, right? And so if somebody walks onto the castle grounds, you're the king there. And the king has the infinite power of life or death over all of his subjects, right? And that, that's what a king is. And so the king is answerable to no court. And so I had this thought about castle doctrine. And when you hear about that, the term castle goes missing from it when people discuss it in, you know, in our present day world and all its extraordinarily sad and terrible applications. Because I do think all the castle doctrine laws in, in the U.S. Are, are garbage, right? They're strictly used to justify people shooting people instead of seeking better alternatives, you know. But me, I'm me. I just get lost on the word castle. And I go, oh, Wow. Because your home isn't a castle at all. It's, it's just it's a house. A castle is what? A castle is a stone fortress that's where the king dwells there. It has a moat in front of it. And then I asked myself, well, is that actually what a castle is? And I looked up castles. I bought some old books about castles and some newer books about castles. It turns out a lot of the stuff we know about castles, and Gage talks to me about this in part seven, a lot of we know about castles is really just because we've been watching movies about castles our whole life. But actually... The castle comes to us from France. Wait a minute. The French didn't get there until 1066. But King Arthur, we know that he wasn't after 1066 because we have pretty good histories. He has to be before then. But if he's before 1066, then King Arthur didn't have a castle, right? And this is the stuff that interested me a lot. This is where I get very, very excited. So who and where was, well, you dig a little deeper. You learn King Arthur was in Welsh, but where did he live? How big would his court have been? Who did he in fact rule over, if not the Britons, right? Well, and you dig into the history of the Arthur mythos. It's all very, very interesting. And the history of the ideas of the castle. And that's a, that's a thing that grows as archaeologists and historians dig into it to, to figure out maybe the Arthurian story we know this too. Well, those are actually French stories, right? A lot of them. But still, there's a historical Arthur to be rooted out. And so I was interested in all that. As you hear, when I start thinking about this, the first thing I start thinking about is the relationship between some unremembered and undemonstrable ground floor reality and the stories that grow on that ground and that eventually 
eclipse it entirely, but which are for you and me, all I need to even say is King Arthur, and you have a story, and I have a story, and our story intersects, and it's something that we share and is real. It's very real. To demystify that story entirely is to miss the point, right? Because when you're younger, when you're 17, you go, well, there was no King Arthur. No, of course there is, because when I say King Arthur, you see King Arthur. So there is a King Arthur. I, mean, I think, yeah, when you're, when you're much younger, you think the demystification is sort of the end process, but it's not. It's actually the opening of the door to what? To the castle, right? <laughs> to the real one. Do you have a favorite moment? Yeah, it's funny. There's a songwriter a friend works with who says, this guy's amazing when he's playing and he gets to a moment that really gets to him. He'll have to stop the take because he makes himself cry. And I find this incredibly moving. Right. It's like this does not happen to me in the studio. I mean, I've gotten pretty emotionally involved, but but when I'm writing a book, this book, and there was there was a moment in the last book also, Universal Harvester, that I remember exactly which one that was. It was the, the moment where uh, the narrator says that children are, are resilient, but it, that doesn't mean that they forget. That makes me really emotional. When I get really emotional, I feel like I'm close to what I'm working on. So for me, it, it, it's Jana Perez's letter to Gage when he's living in Milpitas. That is my moment. The forming of the whole thing is that he addresses her. He describes her letter. We don't get to actually read it. He says, you wrote this to me. He addresses her, right? She says, uh, did I see at last what I had done to you? That's the moment where something breaks open. And it's for me, books are about openings, right? You've toured behind the earlier books, which yeah. I'm assuming is a different experience from touring for music. I mean- Oh yeah, book tour is totally different, yeah. Just in terms of the room and the energy, but also the amount of gear, I'm guessing you travel with less gear when you're traveling. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, even on solo tour, I've got Brandon, who's my longtime sound man and and tour manager, and and usually Trudy, who does merch. There's a family aspect to tour, even on solo tour. But solo tour doesn't happen that often. Usually it's the band. So we are a band of brothers, so to speak, and one sister, right? We reconvene and we gather. All the songs that have been written about touring, they ring true somewhat for musicians. It's not you against the world, but you're doing this thing that nobody who's outside of it can really, is not in the same world, but you're presenting and sharing this release every night. And that's the most important distinction here is that together with your friends in the band, even when, you know, you're not always getting along like past friends, but there is a communication that happens when you're playing music that's otherworldly, right? And this happens every night. Every night you get a release. It's a physical and a spiritual release. On book tour, there will be no release of that sort. When you read, you can go someplace. But if you wrote it, often you bring up new questions about the text for yourself. The text is infinite. So are the songs, but the songs have this physical component that reading doesn't. There have been some writers that really do a lot of work with that. Theodore Rethke, you know, used to approach his readings like, like PE <laughs> classes, you know. So you don't get the release. And the other thing is the signing line is very intense because if people have related to your work, that's their, their chance to tell you. So they do. If those connections are strong, that's a lot of emotion to sort of be experiencing in the course of a workday. And there's nowhere to put that. I had to quit uh, having a therapist at the beginning of lockdown because I stopped getting paid <laughs> for doing stuff. So to have a therapist talk to you, and it's, it's very intense if people share their stories. To harbor, uh, it's, it's, it's also a gift and a blessing. It's not something I'm complaining about, but, but it's a lot. And well, if you're playing music, that happens on music tour too. Somebody catches you outside the venue and they say, hey, I listened to your song when my mother died, you know, and it made a big difference in my life. And you go, oh my God, thank you. I can't tell you what that means to me. Well, then that night, you seek the upper realms of performance to express that energy, right? And that doesn't happen on book tour. <laughs> it's like book tour is different. I think in the book selling world, there's some fairly firm but not documented ideas about how it's supposed to go. And I think there's a lot of ways it could go. And that's what I try and do is like, because I'm pretty good at speaking extemporaneously, nights can go a number of ways. They can do a number of things. And I think that's all anybody wants from a gathering is that it goes someplace. That we started here, this is the place we were at when we got here, and then we all ended up someplace new together. And that's what I try and do. In that sense, it's like performance. But when performance does that, at the moment, at some moment of performance, 
the cork comes out of the bottle and everybody feels it together. And you can't really get that moment in a reading. That's still a struggle for me because for me, it's still performance. I'm lucky that I play rock music for a living, right? There's nothing like it. (laughs) What do you want readers to know about Devil House? That's a funny question because I don't want to be presumptuous. <laughs> Here's the funny thing. So if they're already readers, if we're already talking to people who are going to read it and I'm not trying to sell it to them, I will say that if there is a part that you feel like you're not locking into, try reading it out loud. That's what I do. I read the whole book out loud seven or eight times before, well, I read it four or five times out loud before Sean ever sees it, before it ever goes to edit. I believe that writing was made to be heard. Right. Even though Barry Sanders, to whom this book is dedicated, is a guy who I've learned some of these ideas, even though I also know that it's a silent activity, right? That reading becomes silent at some point after we start writing stuff down. And then the whole nature of writing changes forever. So it can't become an oral art again. But at the same time, I feel it's important to preserve that aspect of the melodiousness of the sentence. When something becomes sound in the room, it takes on a reality that it can't have elsewhere. So there's parts of this book that are meant to be heard out loud. If you're reading the middle section, do a little research on how to pronounce Chaucerian English, and then you you won't go far wrong there. Does that mean I think the audiobook is superior? No, I love books, books. But yeah, like when there's a bunch of comma splices, read them out loud. See what happens when you read comma splices out loud. They're different than if you're just looking at them. So yeah, that's that's the one little sort of, I guess, uh, hack that I would uh, propose is like stop every now and again to read stuff out loud. But I do that with every book I read. I'm reading Shelley right now. And when it gets slow, it's the last man, uh, Ray Shelley. And when it gets a little slow, you stop and read out loud. You go, oh, no, that's not slow at all. You're the one who's <laughs> Beyond Joan Didion, do you have an author you like to return to? I know Didion is a personal favorite. This is funny because I I think about this a lot because I know so many people reread, but I'm 54 and I'm acutely conscious that I'm going to die without having read a tenth of what I would like to have read. And I rue bitterly when I haven't read as much as I could have every day. Well, your days are busy and I like to play games on the computer and I love to cook and I have other stuff I got to do. And I'm not the type of bookworm who can just read for 10 hours in a day. I have to do other stuff. But every day it's like, oh my God, you didn't even clear 50 pages today. Well, goodbye to, to Alexander Dumas, who you've never read ever, or, you know, or the big volume of Trollope that I have over there. <laughs> it's like, so as far as returning, I'm still always meeting new people. I can do an evidence-based approach to this and grab the, the notebook I've been keeping track of my reading in since 1999, where I just write down the books as they go. And, and it won't even be full by the end of my life, right? Because it's, it's 70 pages and there's one book per line, right? I mean, Rogue Grier is the answer. This is somebody, every time I raise his name, I could feel Sean wince because <laughs> Rogue Grier is not the most communicative of writers, but I dole him out in sparing parts because there's only so much. I'm probably never going to read his last one, which is apparently this sadistic, incredibly violent 120 Days of Sodom thing. I don't have any use for that. What's funny is that's because that was part of his life and that whole having a, a mental life of this cruelty. And he had a, his wife was a dominatrix and she wrote books too, but I'm not going to read that. I don't, I don't need that in my life. Um, but his ideas about how to tell a story are very transgressive and weird. Uh, he has one, the first one he has I read where it's got a first person narrator who never speaks in the first person. You'll never even figure that out reading that book unless you read some critique about it. I love that guy for doing that kind of stuff. You know who 
I come back to also sparingly is Louise Erdrich. I think she's so good. And that also makes me think somebody else I discovered the same year I discovered her, who I wish I could come back to, but she stopped writing novels, is Leslie Marmon Silko, who I, I wish would, would bless us with some more novels for me to return to. But I come back to Erdrich. I, I don't circle the same books, but when I have a need for a, a sort of Dickensian, but more compassionate, you know, and, and it's not that Dickens is a compassionate man, but, but Louise Erdrich has a great global vision of compassion in her books and is absolute cracker of a storyteller. <laughs> those are books to read for pleasure, for sheer pleasure, you know, so, so those are some. What's next for you? Well, I don't know. I, I was, uh, I'm always anticipating this question and like, there's two things. If I had something I was working on, I would tell you, but I also wouldn't tell you what it was about. <laughs> I don't tell you anything about it. But I do have, I've recently learned this about myself by going through my files and going, oh, I had this idea that I always pick up a project when the old one's in edit. Well, that's true, but there's also a bunch of dropped projects that, that I never pick back up, right? That sit in the notes app. Well, I have a bunch of those right now. I don't know where any of those will be going. I have a bunch of new songs. I do know where those are going. I don't have yet a concrete idea about writing a bigger book or writing, you know, or addressing any particular theme, I have some ideas. Um, and I have I have a couple of ideas that it, when, I, when I take them a certain direction, they go somewhere where I don't like where they're heading, but they're, they're a little pernicious. And I had a big idea that I outlined a, a month ago or two, two months ago that I suspect by the time it turns into something else, doesn't even faintly resemble its initial thing. But I did wind up ordering a bunch of books to read about for it. And that's, that's one of the things that happens. So we'll see. I think it is meaningful that I'm reading Shelley, you know, although the 19th century is not my area at all. It's like a much more 18th century in my lookings, but we'll see. Before we go, I know you're a huge fan of literature and translation. We need to talk about this for a second. When I say that I read like 90% only literature and translation, this is a, a big hobby horse of mine. So it has nothing to do with my book at all. But I have a spiel that I like to deliver or a shtick as Barry Sanders, to whom I dedicate the book, would call his, you see, I have a shtick and, and his shtick would be, that he's illuminating Chaucer for you forever. So a shtick is a real thing. A shtick is not, not a small thing, but hopefully it's a fun thing. And my shtick is this, that every major moment in English literature happens as the result of something getting translated. We get big seismic shifts when somebody translates a piece of the Decameron or when somebody translates the Bible, right? Or when somebody translates any number of other things in the English. But Americans have this idea that if you're reading it in the tongue it was written in, you are getting the true distillate of what you're reading and that you're losing something. We have this phrase, lost in translation. That phrase requires pretty careful approaching because there's much more gained in translation than lost. And you are not, in fact, getting some distillate, if you're at this one-to-one -one relationship with the text, that you won't get repaid Let's stipulate that, yes, you will miss the natural music that you get as a native speaker. Okay, let's stipulate that. But the things you get by reading literature and translation in exchange for saying, okay, well, I'm not going to grok the natural music of the original author. The things you get in exchange are infinite. And we are the only country in the world where people don't buy literature and translation. Everywhere else in the world, it's not even a question. But Americans have been very resistive to this. For whatever reason, that's for sociologists to tell me about. But there's a couple of houses. There's Deep Vellum and there's Open Letter and there's more. But oh, there's, well, of course, Archipelago, everybody knows about, right? Um, who do all this literature translation. I started doing this 10 or 15 years ago. And what it has done for me as a reader is what I had always hoped I would become as a reader, to have a, just a much more global vision. Global poetry, right? There's uh, Choi Sunya. Phone bells keep ringing for me. I mean, it's very dark poetry. But so the thing I want to, as passionately as I can say, is like put literature and translation in your diet. Force it. 
figure out how many books a year am I going to do in translation to broaden your scope. I mean, I feel this way about about everything, whether it's about reading books by women or books by people of color. Find find what your blind spot is, find what you don't do and broaden it. But my own corner of that is, for the love of God, don't just read stuff written in English because you're literally saying, I'm only going to see this tiny little corner of the world based on, on what? Why? Why would you deny yourself the vast banquet of global literature? Because it is, I mean, there's the avenues that open for you when you read literature translation, you cannot even imagine what's waiting out there. It's so wild if you prioritize this. So that's my little compassionate read literature translation spiel. There. <laughs> it's excellent. John Darnielle, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new novel is Devil House. It is 400 pages of awesome. I will say thank that. You. I can't believe I cleared four. I can't take this, you know, because I because it really is in my nature to be winnowing down, to be, to be cutting and cutting. So get it, but I'm glad you didn't. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.